There are only five Indiana Jones movies, some beloved, some less so. What they all have in common is a storied history of rewrites, with Kingdom of the Crystal Skull being a particularly perilous adventure. Like the artifacts of the films themselves, every known version of the script required a certain level of myth-busting, determining fact from fiction. Thanks to a plethora of forgeries, the internet made the 18-year odyssey into an endlessly confusing shitshow. Indiana Jones is without a doubt one of the most iconic film characters of all time. His look, his grit, his cleverness, his exhaustion, John Williams' theme, and of course, in that role, the perfect, relatable action star, Harrison Ford. His first three films, all directed by a more and more confident Steven Spielberg, are what most action-adventure movies wish they could be, and each one started inside the mind of George Lucas. The character of Indiana Jones was his original invention, with some help from writer-director Philip Kaufman, and he would choose the plot device slash artifact that Indy would be on the hunt for, aka the MacGuffin. Raiders of the Lost Ark in 1981 came about from multiple brainstorming sessions with Kaufman, Spielberg, and screenwriter Lawrence Kasdan. They had so many ideas, the script came together rather easily. It's not the years, it's the mileage. Most of Temple of Doom in 85 was built around those discarded original concepts, like a Shanghai opening, escaping from a plane, and a minecart chase. But the rest was a struggle for Lucas. He initially wanted the next one to be in a haunted Scottish castle, but Spielberg nixed it after he directed, uh, produced Poltergeist. So nailing down a setting at a MacGuffin was a problem, something screenwriters Willard Hike and Gloria Katz solved. What is Sankawa? Fortune and glory, kid. Fortune and glory. For the third, Christopher Columbus, hot off gremlins and goonies, wrote Indiana Jones and the Lost City of Sun Wukong. It contained the last of the Raiders' ideas that would make it into the third film. Angry students, a boat chased through a harbor, rescuing someone in a tank, and an artifact that grants eternal life. But it also had Indy riding a rhino into battle, fighting ghosts in a Scottish castle, flesh-eating ants, a society of pygmies, a talking spider monkey god, and an army of gorillas killing Nazis. Lucas decided it was too unrealistic compared to the others. You call this archaeology? When Jeffrey Bohm came aboard, the plot evolved into the Holy Grail. But even then, Lucas felt that it wasn't strong enough to carry the movie. He still thinks Indy's relationship with his father is what saved the film. To him, finding a MacGuffin was so irritating that making a fourth film was out of the question. To Spielberg, he deliberately ended The Last Crusade in 1989 with the hero riding off into the sunset. Yet, to Harrison Ford, he loved the character so much, he was always game to come back. Lucas did return to the character, producing the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles, a TV series that was less about MacGuffins and more about Indy running through several historical events meeting various historical people, like Sigmund Freud, John Ford, Teddy Roosevelt, and Mata Hari. And to think that you knew Marta Hari, sir. She really was one of the greats. Each adventure was filmed like a feature-length movie that would be broken up into two one-hour episodes for television. They were also written or directed by a rotating list of Lucas's filmmaking friends. From Carrie Fisher, Mike Newell, and Terry Jones, to Indiana veterans like Ben Burt, Joe Johnston, and Vic Armstrong. 
Five of the episodes were written by an upcoming writer, but we'll get to that. Kid Indy was played by Corey Carrier, and replacing River Phoenix as Teen Indy was Sean Patrick Flannery's hair. Then a reminiscing 90-year-old one-eyed Indy, played by George Hall, would bookend each episode. Harrison Ford returned for a single episode, shooting for two days while he was on break from making The Fugitive. As far as I'm concerned, the best thing on television and has nothing to do with my connection to Indiana Jones. The show's immense production cost wasn't offset by its viewership. Premiering in 1992, audiences quickly dropped off, perhaps because many tuned in hoping for more action adventures with Indiana Jones, and instead they found a series designed to be semi-educational. Ford's brief appearance didn't help much, and ABC canceled it in 1993, then sold it to the Family Channel, which produced four more made-for-TV movies. In a very Lucas move, he re-edited Young Indy into 22 feature-length films re-released on home video called The Adventures of Young Indiana Jones, where old Indy was completely removed. It was during the series production that Lucas first became fascinated with the mystery, slash hoax, of crystal skulls, and the possibility of their alien origin. Lucas finally found a MacGuffin worth considering. The skull is supposed to have supernatural powers. A lot of people believe that aliens came here 5,000 years ago and helped begin civilization, and so it's actually very plausible. It's very realistic in that way. That's one of the things I really love about it, is that it's rooted in real life. Is such a thing even possible? Yes, it is. While his writers researched the skulls for a future Young Indy episode that never came to be, Lucas thought the idea of aliens for Indy 4 could work. Raiders of the Lost Ark was originally modeled after Saturday morning serials of the 30s and 40s, like Spy Smasher and Zorro's Fighting Legion. Larger-than-life heroes going on over-the-top adventures, usually fighting Nazis. Because Nazis are bad. Goose-stepping morons like yourself should try reading books instead of burning them. If they aged Indy up appropriately 10 years, what would be the pulp-pop culture of the time that a sequel could emulate? The 1950s introduced a wave of sci-fi B-movies, capitalizing on America's paranoia of the atomic age and Cold War tensions. The fear of a Russian invasion became the fear of an alien invasion. The fear of apocalyptic nuclear war became the fear of... Giant ants? Lucas didn't see the indie franchise as solely action-adventure. To him, it was malleable. It could be a musical, a spy thriller, a horror flick, a buddy comedy, or a relationship drama. As long as the MacGuffin was based in historical fact, why couldn't Indy 4 be a sci-fi B-movie with aliens at its center? Nothing shocks me. I'm a scientist. He pitched it to Harrison Ford while they filmed his young indie cameo. Ford quickly laughed it off, saying no. He wanted Indy to always be based in the mysteries of ancient cultures. But if he could get Spielberg on board, he'd consider it. So began Lucas's 18-year journey to get a fourth Indiana Jones with aliens. Spielberg had done two films about extraterrestrials at that point, and wasn't remotely interested. I, I was the holdout. I was the one that said, I'm done with this series. It was great. Let's walk away. And I resisted, I resisted, I resisted, but I also never thought I'd be making Indiana Jones for So I, I, I guess I kind of humored George by going along with it, thinking, well, I'll never wind up directing this movie. So Harrison Ford, for years, was waiting in the wings until the two men both agreed on anything. I'd lo I, I loved working with Steven. It, it was great fun, and we hope to be able to do it again, actually. Would you play Indiana Jones again? 
in a New York minute. Han Solo, on the other hand. I, I don't have any plans to continue to do that character. Something he often repeated. What was the second time? Would you do another? Nope. No. Would you play Han Solo again? In 1994, Ford declared he was currently reading scripts for Indiana Jones 4. And that simple quote kickstarted an endless rumor mill spread about the early years of the internet. The first rumored screenplay was Indiana Jones and the Lost Continent, about the search for the lost city of Atlantis. While many pointed out the plot was eerily similar to the 1992 LucasArts game, Fate of Atlantis, others believed that only proved its legitimacy. But it was a hoax. A man from the UK sold the scoop to the Daily Mail on the sole purpose to prove to his mother that the tabloid published phony stories all the time. A story like this was enough for forums to explode with rumors of every kind. And news sites would recklessly post literally anything to fuel that rabid fanbase. In actuality, Lucas was kicking around ideas with Die Hard and the fugitive screenwriter Jeb Stewart. The first official finished draft of Indy 4 was dated May 1994, titled Indiana Jones and the Saucerman from Mars. It included many of the ideas that Lucas wanted from the onset. The mystery of Roswell, New Mexico, Russian bad guys, a CIA double-crosser, flesh-eating ants, Indy getting married, and yes, aliens. So many aliens. There's a flying saucer chased through a canyon, a town populated by seven-foot spider aliens, but they're actually robots piloted by tiny bug aliens, the army being annihilated by alien technology, and the aliens taking their MacGuffin and going home. Stewart departed in 1995, and Last Crusade writer Jeffrey Bohm came back which made fans go wild with speculation. As luck would have it, Bohm's script leaked to the internet. Titled Indiana Jones and the Sons of Darkness, it follows Indy's race with the Russians to find the resting place of Noah's fabled Ark. Lucasfilm handed out cease and desist orders to any site that posted it, which meant it had to be real, right? Again, this was a fake. An overzealous fan wrote it, hoping the publicity would get his foot in the door of Hollywood, despite all the legal issues coming his way. Yet this didn't deter the Daily Mail from claiming Kevin Costner would play Indy's bad seed brother. Sometimes the truth can ruin a perfectly good story. Yeah, you should work for the Daily Mail. What Bohm was in fact writing was multiple revisions of Stewart's original. His version, Indiana Jones and the Saucerman, had Lucas's new ideas. The fight onto a rocket sled, a fake town being nuked, and Indy surviving it by hiding in a fridge. This one remaining stationary inside a ditch. Indy also gets a hand-wavy radiation scrub down. Then the massively successful Saucerman of Independence Day arrived in 1996. Spielberg didn't want to fight in that arena and told Lucas no. For this series, the two men agreed on equal decision making. Nothing would ever move forward without the other's approval. Lucas retreated, moving on to the Star Wars prequels. But he reiterated, if Indy 4 happens, there will be aliens. Four years went by with no official movement. However, that didn't mean the internet wasn't gonna internet. Ain't It Cool News went so far as to say they uncovered a script dated February 1997, Indiana Jones and the Monkey King. Though the fact that it included 1930s Nazis and Marcus Brody, a character played by Denim Elliott who sadly died in 1992, should have given everyone pause. Technically, this one was real. 
but from 1985. It was the unrealistic script Lucas abandoned for Last Crusade that somehow finally leaked. But this was what passed as news, and it just kept happening. Complete Hearsay told of Tom Selleck playing Indy's brother, a rather inspiring fantasy casting, or Mark Hamill as the villain, and a sidekick played by everyone from Jackie Chan to Scarlett Johansson. Fake, 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 fake. Or there was the total gibberish that Natalie Portman would be Indy's daughter, Idaho. But the true mother would be revealed through some Mamma Mia-style hijinks. A lot of this bullwhip was circulated by sites like Ain't It Cool News, Joe Blow, and Dark Horizons, stating their sources gave validity to the rumors. Oh, I don't know. I'm making this up as I go. And with no actual news to cover, the click-hungry websites churned out numerous bogus scoops. Indiana Jones and the Forbidden Treasure, again about Noah's Ark, written by Lawrence Kasdan. Fake. Indiana Jones, The Law of One. Actually, it's the first fan script recirculating. The opening scene of Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Fallen Empire leaks, with Indy searching for the Garden of Eden. Fake. Indiana Jones and the Red Scare. Indy racing Russians to Hitler's occult bunker. Fake. In 1999, another one of Jeffrey Bohm's supposed scripts appears. Indiana Jones and the Sword of Arthur. Clearly about the search for Excalibur, fans knew this one had to be real because the final battle had Indy losing an eye, lining it up with his appearance in the TV series. Barely a week passed before two fans confessed they wrote it as a challenge to prove they could do better than the Sons of Darkness sham. Damn, I thought that was closer. Then there was Indiana Jones and the Tomb of Ice, where Indy discovers Excalibur is the key to Ragnarok and fights Viking ghosts at the gates of Valhalla. That one actually sounds pretty cool. Okay, the appeal of these stories makes sense, but thankfully this was the last big forgery the internet was willing to believe. In February of 2000, Harrison Ford was receiving an AFI Lifetime Achievement Award. After watching clips of Indiana Jones, then gathering backstage, Ford, Lucas, Spielberg, and producers Frank Marshall and Kathleen Kennedy reminisced about the fun they had together. It reignited their passion to make another. Plus, the 1999 blockbuster, The Mummy, proved audiences were still interested in the very specific genre of archaeological period piece action adventures. That spring, they met to discuss ideas. Lucas still wanted aliens, but he found a workaround that made Spielberg finally give in. Then George came to me one day, I'll never forget this conversation, said, you know, you might be right about this alien thing. Maybe we shouldn't do aliens. There's too much of that stuff around. I said, George, I love you. That's the best news you've ever given me. He said, yeah, they're not aliens. They're, they're kind of extra dimensional. I said, what? He said, okay, these are interdimensional beings. They're not extraterrestrials. They're interdimensional. So I said, fine, fine. And what are they going to look like? George said, look like aliens. Lucas looked for a new screenwriter. He met with Tom Stoppard and Stephen Gagan, and M. Night Shyamalan battered around ideas with Lucas, but became too busy with Unbreakable. In the summer of 2002, Lucas reached back to the TV series and hired Frank Darabont, writer of five young indie episodes. Not to mention, Darabont was a script doctor on Spielberg's Saving Private Ryan and Minority Report. He had recently written and directed the critically acclaimed The Shawshank Redemption and The Green Mile. And the whole reason he became a writer was because of Lucas's THX. I walked out of the movie theater at the age of 12 wanting to make, to do this for a living because of that movie. On paper, Darabont was a fantastic choice. 
Per Lucas's instructions, Darabont knew that Indy's ultimate destination needed to be the lost city of gold, and the Crystal Skull is what brought him there. And while Spielberg teased the appearance of Temple of Doom's Willie Scott, Darabont thought Marion Ravenwood from Raiders was Indy's true love. Indiana Jones and the City of the Gods was completed in May 2003. It had all the makings of what the film would eventually become. Hot Rods in Nevada, a double, double crossing friend, a jeep chase inside the warehouse from Raiders, aka Area 51, a rocket sled ride, the nuking of a fake town, a life-saving fridge, a radiation scrub, a Marcus Brody statue, flying to Peru, Nazca Lines, Marion's Return, missing Professor Oxley, flesh-eating ants, vine swinging, falling down three waterfalls, a throne room of 13 gods, who are actually aliens, the temple turning into a flying saucer, and Indy marrying Marion. It wasn't all the same. It was much grander, if you can believe, with more villains, more action scenes, and more aliens. Henry Sr. appears once, and one hilarious scene has Indy drunkenly break into a museum to steal back the fertility idol from Raiders, which also made it too self-referential. Darabont turned in three drafts that Spielberg was really happy with. He really dug it. George didn't. And they're, they're really partners in this, in the Indiana Jones effort. So but both of them have to be on board. For whatever reason, Lucas hated Darabont's script and fired him. The very vocal Darabont has not been shy about his time on Indiana Jones. I spent a year of very determined effort on something I was very excited about, working very closely with Steven Spielberg, and coming up with a result that I and he felt was terrific. Then suddenly the whole thing goes down in flames because George Lucas doesn't like the script. I told him he was crazy. He's one of the most stubborn men I know. Spielberg said none of Darabont's work would make it to the screen. While obviously not true, some Writers Guild nonsense removed any credit for Darabont on the finished film. Afterwards, Lucas took the script, put his own polish on it, and gave it the title Indiana Jones and the Phantom City of the Gods. Then came Jeff Nathanson, who wrote Catch Me If You Can and The Terminal for Spielberg. Nathanson would write a draft that Lucas wanted, rework it after talking to Spielberg, only for Lucas to have him reverse those decisions later. An annoyed Nathanson walked away. His script, Indiana Jones and the Atomic Ants, possibly a codename, was turned in at the tail end of 2005. The same year, Spielberg ironically made War of the Worlds a remake of a sci-fi B-movie. Lastly came David Kep, writer of War of the Worlds and both Spielberg-directed Jurassic Parks, who brought it home. After trying and failing to convince Lucas to ditch the aliens, his one condition was that he would not be bounced around like Nathanson. So Lucas would relay his ideas only to Spielberg, who in turn would tell Kep. Nathanson initially added Indy having a 13-year-old daughter, which Indy had in the TV series, but Spielberg thought it too similar to the daughter character he did in The Lost World. So Kep technically retconned her into the greaser son mutt. In the end, Spielberg said it took Kep to make the not-an-alien concept palatable, and Ford agreed. Kep's Indiana Jones and the Destroyer of Worlds in 2006 was finally a screenplay good enough to be given the green light. With everyone ready, the last question was Sean Connery's involvement as Henry Jones Sr. Spielberg spoke with him, but Connery didn't think the part was good enough to come out of retirement. It was um, not that generous a part. Um, the father of Indy is, was not that important, and uh, 
I had suggested that they kill him in the movie, it would have taken care of it better. Camp adjusted his screenplay, mentioning that Indy's father had already died. Filming went by without a hitch. Other than an undetonated explosive landing next to Harrison Ford. Beyond that, the 65-year-old never got injured, it only went slightly over schedule, Spielberg didn't require any reshoots, and he cut the movie on film, much to the annoyance of Lucas. The only production issues were fan-made. One extra, playing a Russian dancer, violated every inch of his NDA by gleefully revealing a ton of plot details to his hometown newspaper. Lucasfilm lawyered him out of existence. A production laptop was stolen, and the thief attempted to sell the contents online, was easily caught, then sentenced to two years in prison. Fans would dig up any information they could. Like when Ford joked that the movie would be called Indiana Jones and the Opal of the Merman Prince. Merman. Ain't It Cool News posted it like it was a legitimate possibility. Merman. Lucasfilm did trademark multiple titles for the film, mostly as decoys, but they decided Kep's Destroyer of Worlds was too dark. Then the official title was revealed in the most 2000s way possible. So uh, I've been sworn to secrecy by Steven Spielberg and George Lucas, not to tell you the title of the next Indiana Jones movie. What the hell, I'm 21 and we're in Vegas, baby, so here it goes. The official title to the next Indiana Jones installment is Indiana Jones <laughs> and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. It's a big deal, nobody's ever heard it before. These are the nominees for Female Artist of the Year. Experiencing the same internet overhype that plagued Star Wars Episode One, Lucas knew the storm was brewing for an indie backlash. No version of the film was going to live up to fan expectations. A fact proven time and again by sequels separated by decades. In hindsight, it probably didn't help that Spielberg and his team continually promised to the same fans jaded by the endless visual effects of Lucas's Star Wars prequels that Crystal Skull would be practical and never unbelievable. Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull swung to theaters May 22, 2008. Against a monumental budget of $185 million, the film grossed $790 million, becoming the second biggest movie of the year worldwide. Reviews were slightly kinder to the film upon opening, calling it an old-fashioned fun, yet unsurprising, nostalgic ride. And really, who's going to complain about more Harrison Ford in that fedora? Nonetheless, that same summer, the conversation wasn't about the return of a legend. Audiences were meeting a new icon for a new age, born in Robert Downey Jr.'s Iron Man, and making The Dark Knight a record-crushing cultural landmark. If Crystal Skull was being discussed, it was, as Lucas predicted, all fan backlash. Why would Spielberg and Lucas do this? Come on, let's go! Whether it was the digital prairie dogs, or Mutt fencing between cars, or Mutt vine swinging, or Mutt picking up the hat, <laughs> the two biggest sticking points for so many to this day is Indy surviving the nuclear blast in a fridge, and the very concept of aliens being used in an Indiana Jones film. 
Shia LaBeouf would defend it, stating that adult fans no longer had the ability to suspend disbelief like they once did. But in the years since, his increasingly candid interviews quoted him blaming himself. Then, he and Spielberg dropped the ball with the legacy. He also claimed Ford applauded his disparaging comments. Then Ford and Spielberg told him, in no uncertain terms, to shut up and support the work of your fellow cast and crew. For his part, Spielberg sympathizes with those who hated the MacGuffin, as he was never convinced of it either. It was the argument he conceded to George Lucas. However, he takes full blame for nuking the fridge, claiming it was his idea. Lucas counters this, saying his friend was simply protecting him. When Frank Darabont's version of the script leaked, the debate continued to rage on, for what might have been. As for Harrison Ford, like he always does, he asks us to question why we should even care that much. Who gives a <laughs> 15 years later, Crystal Skull's reception hasn't changed much, and it didn't hinder Ford from wanting to do it again. Lucas contemplated ideas for Indy 5, but disillusioned with the film business, he sold Lucasfilm to Disney in 2012, with indie producer Kathleen Kennedy now in charge. Their priority was making new Star Wars films, so Indy wasn't put into active development until 2016, with Ford and Spielberg returning. But yet again, writing Indy 5 also seemed challenging. David Kep started it, Jonathan Kasdan, Lawrence's son, gave it a shot, then Kep came back, but then left again when Spielberg decided he wasn't going to direct it. Without Lucas and without Spielberg, Ford became the sole driving creative behind Indy, and he passed the torch to director James Mangold, who wrote the film with Jez and John Henry Butterworth. Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny will be the last Indiana Jones film. Unlike Star Wars, Kennedy affirms that she will never recast Henry Indiana Jones Jr. And maybe that's a good thing. A film character free of reboots, remakes, or reinventions. What a novel idea. We should all let Indy retire with Harrison Ford. They sure as hell have earned it. I'm Indiana Jones. So when you're gone, it's gone. When I'm gone. He's gone. It's easy. This is a hell of a way to tell Chris Pines this. <laughs> I'm sorry, man. Thank you so much for listening. It Was a Shit Show is researched and produced by me, Ian Gench. Sound editing and mix by Ray Reynolds. Our theme music is by Ryan K. Hudson. Wardrobe provided by Clint's Closet. If you're enjoying the show, you can support us on Patreon or help spread the word by leaving a review and forcing your friends and family to listen. And if you have a shit show suggestion, find us on social media at It Was a Shit Show, but shit without the eye. You can also find all these episodes on our YouTube channel. 